what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Goldstein is a philosopher and novelist. She took her PhD in philosophy from Princeton University, where she went on to teach courses in philosophy of science and philosophy of mind and philosophy of mathematics. She's taught at a number of other leading universities in the United States. She's written novels and books which have been met with popular and critical success, and she was designated Humanist of the Year by the American Humanist Association in 2011. In 2015, she was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Barack Obama. Thank you, Rebecca, for joining us on What I Believe. That's my pleasure. Most people I've talked to have, during the course of our conversation, almost uncovered and realized uh, the beliefs that they have while we were talking. But I'm wondering if you might be different. And I'm wondering that because I think you might have had to think more consciously about the beliefs that you have. Your current life as a humanist philosopher, part of the world of ideas, I think is quite different from the world you were raised in. So I thought we might uh, start there. Uh, yes, you know, I sometimes, sometimes will just sort of come to and in the midst of my life and think, what? This is the life I ended up with? There was no way that I could have anticipated this. As I was growing up in a very religious family, an Orthodox Jewish family, um, and uh, um, yes, <laughs> my, my life mapped out um, in front of me, uh, that used to give me um, great despair, even as a child, thinking that, uh, uh, this is this is this is where I'm going to end up, um, and uh, yes, I was, you know, I and then I was sent to an extremely stringent um, high school, um, and it was the kind of high school where the girls got engaged uh, while they were still in high school, as I did, and um, and were discouraged from going on to college. But I had already. I had already been bitten by the bug of, uh, of knowledge and uh, wanted to know everything and, um, uh, and was already a non-believer. I think I, I became a non-believer at about the age of uh, 12 or 13. Was that what was important to you? You say there the, the, the lust for knowledge. Is that one of the things that's motivated you from then on? Absolutely. <laughs> it is yeah. just... Um, uh, this is a, is a, a, a lust, a longing, a hunger. Um, it's never satisfied. Never, never. I mean, it still drives me mad that there are whole areas of, of, of knowledge that I, I don't, that I'm not expert at. Um, it is the greatest joy for me to learn things and then to integrate them. This sort of, you know, to, to, to bring it all together into a a maximally coherent worldview is to me, you know, to both plunge deeply, but then always to try to see, well, which, which other of my beliefs have to go now? Um, you know, which is, so this sort of maximal coherence, this has just always been uh, a driving force for me. So it's more than just curiosity. It's, it's 
it's the integration of the knowledge, the creation exactly. of the view. Yeah, yeah it, it is. And I, you know, I do, I, I think that, I think it's a deep, I don't think I'm special here at all. I think that it is part of what it is uh, to be human. I actually do believe that. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, that we are a species who's trying to get our bearings in this world. Um, but we can live with inconsistency. And that is something I think that was something a little bit different with me that, you know, inconsistencies, I'm alert to them. They bother me. I can't live with them. So I, I'll, I'll give you a story. So I had a dear sister. Um, I, I come from, you know, a family. We were four children and I had an older sister who died young and uh, relatively young. And, um, and, she she held all sorts of beliefs. She was very she was very <laughs> belief friendly. I <laughs> she, she was just and hospitable. Yeah. Yes, I mean she was just <laughs> never met a belief she didn't find <laughs> compatible. So and I would you know sometimes demonstrate to her you know the inconsistency. Now my sister was not she was very smart, <laughs> and I would demonstrate to her the inconsistency, and then. And then she would say, yeah, yeah, I see it. And I say, okay, so which one of these are you going to give up? And she would say, oh, there you go with your philosophy. <laughs> well, I'm not a professional philosopher. You know, it, it always baffled me. And, um, you know, and it's not that she couldn't see it. She saw it, but she could live with it. And this is, she was my sister, my uh, person I probably loved more, you know, more than anybody else almost. And, um, uh, yeah, but there it was. So what bothers you about the inconsistency? They is can't it, both be true. It, it's, it's truth. It's truth. It's truth. You've it's got truth. two contradictory things. One of them must be false. One of them must be true. I must have the truth. Don't we want to, when we're believing, what it means to believe is you believe that it's true. And I mean, truth is, is just built right into this attitude, this propositional attitude, we call, you know, of, of belief. And so it's, how can it not bother you? Uh, how can you accept it? It's, it? it's interesting, but I think there might be. Um, so, you know, I have this, uh, this grandchild now, he's three years old, which is a fascinating age. I mean, it's sort of things are kind of in place, but they're still very fluid, the whole conceptual schemes. And he, I see that, you know, he, when he plays make-believe, he knows he's playing make-believe, but it's also kind of real to him. And it's not either things are either real or not, true or not. There's this kind of middle ground where it's, you know, it's just, yeah, where the law of, of, uh, of non-contradiction just doesn't seem to hold. Mm. And one of the things I am entertaining now is that maybe a lot of people never completely emerge from that stage where you know well you kind of know this is yeah it's a sort of story yeah. it's a mythology it's yeah. a something we're going to entertain it and maybe i just yeah that that was something i have you never done that i mean i felt like that when you described that i feel like that's as a child how i felt about star trek right which i knew mm. wasn't actually true but a small part of me did regard it as like the history of the future a story that was sort of true and I when I was very young I guess people some children of course at a certain age feel like that about Father Christmas as well you know they that's they know right. that's not true they know it's a story but on the other hand it's part of their experience as if it's true somehow 
it's not that they know it's uh, they they know it's not true like um if you go out your door you'll be outside and see the garden true yes yes but they they know something else but have you never had anything like that in your life I can't remember. And, and as you know, you know, my side profession is as a novelist. I have an extremely vivid imagination. And there is a way when I am creating a novel and creating characters and living their lives, and they are decidedly not me, um, you know, there's a sense of reality to it. But I'm very aware that this is not truth, you know, so that, I, you know, I can't recall this. But, you know, watching right. my little... My little grandson, um, I'm thinking, oh, maybe this is, this is what I've always either been missing or just, I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, so what is it that you're integrating all the time when you're integrating into your worldview? As you said, you're very consciously owning that as an act of creation. I can see that that's, that's an important belief to you. Um, is it just facts that you're integrating into that? Like it's, uh, um, you know, straight out truth propositions and facts. Is that how you're in? Or is this any, what other ingredients are going in there as you're creating this view of life? Um, well, a lot of it has to do with science. I think that uh, a philosopher has to always keep up um, with what's going on scientifically. And I come from a scientific background, and specifically you know, physics. And so, um, you know, so that is always very, very important, or, you know, new experiments in neuroscience. And that's changing all the time. There's always new that's stuff there. Yeah. All yeah. the time. So which, which views, you know, about the nature of reality are compatible with it or um, encouraged by it, you know, um, and which uh, are still open. You know, there's something that, 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 that could still... So there, there's that. Um, I'm very fascinated by human uh, behavior. So for example, this little thing with my grandson that I was just talking about, in some way, it's like, ah, you know, maybe this is what's been going on with my religious relatives who, you know, yeah, maybe, so, so that kind of thing. So here I am once again, that's a perfect example, you know, of, of, uh, oh, I'm watching yeah, I'm watching him play and, you know, he knows it's not real, but he kind of is entertaining it as if it's real. His emotions are as if it's real. He's actually afraid of the big bad wolf or whatever. And, um, huh, what is that, what is that teaching me about um, religious psychology? So these, these are obviously some of the, as we started this conversation, these are some of the beliefs that are, are different or that you've come to um, away almost from the culture of your upbringing uh, i suppose it might even be more interesting to think about what beliefs you've retained is there anything yeah. that you are conscious of sort of actually you still do have you, what, what have you carried over from that period oh very very strongly oh gosh there are quite a few actually yeah well that's good um, I mean, they're interesting quite a few. let's talk about them um the, the first thing is and perhaps it's come up already is my sense of um I guess I would, I would call it epistemic responsibility, that we really have to take responsibility for our beliefs. You know, when I was just saying, you know, when we believe something, we believe it's true, you know, so that we really should ought to be caring about that. But also we act on our beliefs, you know, so they are 
morally pregnant, our beliefs. And so, um, you know, whenever we, you know, we act, there's always a belief. Um, there's a belief and there's desire, you know, motivating us. And so there is such a sacred, can I use that word? A yeah, I think it's important responsibility um, to, to really keep examining your beliefs and, you know, and, and to be bothered by inconsistency. And so this, you know, this, this was from the very beginning, this was, uh, you know, something that was motivating me and it's, it's it still is. It's, it's I, I, more and more when I see and where do you think that came from? I mean, was that present in your upbringing? Is, was it a family principle to be thinking that way? Was it a thoughtful family, although in this religious way that you've um, described? Um, yes, it was or, a very intellectual family. Right. But, um, but it was, well, first of all, huh, there was a great distinction between male and female, you know, and so... Okay. That was extremely irksome to me. I don't know why, but it was, you know, because it wasn't irksome to my sisters, um, but it was to me. Um, and so there was one boy, the oldest, and, uh, you know, and whereas my uh, intellectual curiosity, I was very interested in science, and I was constantly reading books on science, and, you know, my mother was just worried about it. Um, she thought it was, one, not going to leave, you know, could lead me into dangerous places. And two, nobody's going to want to marry her. Oh, <laughs> so, um, you know, it was not. And also, oh, you know, three, that I was shaming my brother. Um, you know, that, that it was... By, well, showing him up because he wasn't yeah. so good. Oh, really? <laughs> no, he's very smart. He's very smart. Oh, right. He's a rabbi. He's very smart. But I, um, I don't know. You know, it's just... Pipe down, little girl. <laughs> and, oh, um, and then I was, yeah, I was sent to a school in which the, that was the general attitude. Pipe down, little girl. Don't ask questions. And um, so, yeah, I mean, so much is temperament, isn't it? You know, it's... Uh, I think so. I mean, it's an interesting yeah. question, isn't it, which is endlessly fascinating. Like you say, you know, you had the same experience, you were in the same place, um, but your sister didn't and you did you know, yeah. rea react yeah. to it, kick against it, you know, want something yes. different. Yeah, I don't know. And it's not a matter of intelligence. I take umbrage, you know, sometimes when my fellow uh, free thinkers speak about religious people as if they're dumb, you know, <laughs> and right. that you, you know, you just have to explain it to them. And no, that's, that, that's not the case. I know that's not the case, you know, because I have... You know, I come from a, a family of Talmudic scholars who, you know, who could think circles around me uh, about many, many things. And um, it's not intelligence. It's something else. So, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that sounds to me like that you have carried over. A, you know, it's, you've not just reacted against beliefs and come to your own different ones. You've carried over a certain, it sounds, a certain sort of uh, intellectual rigor. You've just deployed it in a different direction, maybe. I would think so. I, and, you know, I think that... Um, um, so that is, that is certainly one. Here's another thing that I truly carried over from my family. Um, within Judaism, um, intellectual endeavor is seen as a moral activity. That, that's a, that it really is. So what you do, if you're 
a male <laughs> in in this tradition is you is you study and and uh, you you the expression is you sit and learn, um, and the word yeshiva, which is the you know word for these academies where you know you're you're just studying um, the Talmud and such. Uh, derives from the Hebrew word for sit. That's what you do, you sit. <laughs> and um, we're not very fit people. <laughs> but um, so, and that that is seen as, as moral activity, you know, that you are, you know, in coming to delve deeper and deeper and making all sorts of uh, logical distinctions and carrying out implications and doing the kind of work that I do as an analytic mm. philosopher, mm. that that is moral activity. So, and I, I do believe something of that. That right. is that I think, you know, to see clearly um, and to, to, to come to know um, changes your behavior and um and if it doesn't it's not it's, it hasn't gone deep enough um i certainly believe that about philosophy you know and so um you know that philosophy is supposed to uh you know not only ex to expand your mind is to expand you know your whole being um and to ultimately hopefully make one a better person i i believe that um mm. and that is something truly I got from my tradition. Hmm. I think that's profound. I think it's, it's always interesting to reflect on what we've carried over, even from mm -hmm. those contexts in which we've uh, perhaps rejected or reacted to a lot. Um, I'm very unfortunate like that, being raised in a sort of humanist uh, atmosphere. <laughs> I really wanted something to reject, you know, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't um, have the chance. I carried it all over. That's not quite yeah. true. But, you, but know. you know, you you do know. I know you're being facetious because you do know um, how um, you know how lonely it can be. And um, you know, I I was never. I it never for me came from a place of anger. I've never been angry. Mm. Um, I, I I love my family, and I was exactly so afraid of um, of rejection and and i lived an orthodox life for until both my parents died and why why did you do that out of concern for them yes oh completely i had about so i, I went to this very orthodox school an all-girls school and we were learning i don't know if i ever told you the story but anyway um we were learning jewish history i, I mostly played hooky i hated at school uh, but but I was there one day and we were learning Jewish history and we were learning about um, modernity um, and we were against it. The school was against <laughs> it. Right? It was all downhill from Babylonia. <laughs> and um, and we this uh, philosopher, this very bad boy, little girls. This is a cautionary tale, little girls. This very bad man named Baruch Spinoza, listened to the crazy stuff he believed, you know, and he thought that nature was God, and he thought that, you know, God didn't, didn't write the five books of Moses, and, you know, suddenly my ears, like, perked up, right? <laughs> and it was like, who is this dude, right? Like, what is this? And, because um, I, when I played hooky, I was going to libraries and just reading randomly, 
Um, and so, you know, desperately trying to get myself an education. That's why I was playing hockey. And so um, that was, uh, no, no, I've sort of lost the train of my thought. Why well, it you? doesn't matter because I think Spinoza is a really interesting thing to come on to because <laughs> yes. you've, you've, you've written and spoken a lot about Spinoza. I think uh, you're, you're a good friend of his, um, oh, I you. think, by this, by this stage. <laughs> no, I think, and I think you've certainly, I mean, hearing you speak about it certainly prompted me. I remember when I was writing my book on secularism um, and writing about Locke um, and his views, and I thought, you know what, I'm sure of Bexham the most. And I went back and looked up, and you can see Spinoza's influence on lot you can see Spinoza's influence everywhere everywhere something that yes. I was really interested in you and so I think although this is meant to be to some extent about personal beliefs I think it might be worth for a moment just telling us what you believe about Spinoza because I think you think he's incredibly important and I, I agree with you and you've I converted made, me to this so. oh good yeah. I, no, I think he uh, I think he created the enlightenment I think. maybe we should say who Spinoza is very quickly like a potted just dates yes 17th you know, century 17th. <laughs> 17th century born in Amsterdam um, of a Jewish family um, of uh, escapees from the Inquisition his family was from uh, Portugal where it had been you know Judaism had been outlawed by the end of the uh, sixth 15th century. Yes, and he was excommunicated by his Jewish community of Amsterdam and uh, wrote this amazing book, which could not be published during his lifetime, called The Ethics, which is the first attempt of the modern age to take up the project that had been begun in ancient Athens, which was to put ethics on entirely naturalist grounds. And, you know, for this he was condemned not only by his own uh, Jewish community, but by greater Christian Europe as being Satan's emissary on earth. That's, and yet, <laughs> and yet, um, what happened is people had to read him if you wanted to make any advancement in both ecclesiastical and academic circles, you had to have your refutation of this Satan's emissary all lined up and there's actually a whole catalog in Leipzig of anti-Spinoza, you know, the, the refutations that you had to know. So people read him in order to make advancement. Mm. And as they read him, he had an influence. It's just an amazing story. And so, you know, a hundred years later, you get the enlightenment. I mean, I, this is a very simplistic view <laughs> that was, of that went quickly, didn't it then? <laughs> yes, yeah. But, but, you know, and, Oh, it, but I think it's that's an basically right. I mean, dramatic, yeah, dramatic story. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we don't have time to, like you say, to get, people should read your book if they want to learn more, obviously. Um, but um, yeah, I have a book on it, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spinoza, the that's renegade right. Jew who gave us modernity. So there you go. In the, in the subtitle, I do believe that that is the case. It's a good book. I like it particularly not for just the, the, the things that you learn, but actually the, it's a corrective to a lot of very bad narratives these days about, you know, um, you probably get this in the US as well, uh, this whole idea that it was Christianity that gave us modern values, it was Christianity that gave us human rights, it was Christianity that gave us the Enlightenment. This is very popular at the moment as uh -huh. sort of modern, modern Christians try to take back the historical agenda, you know. Um, and I think that every now and again when they say that, I just say, well, you know, have you heard of Spinoza? Because yeah. he's Jewish and he, <laughs> yeah. he's got a... Sometimes they just try and gather the Jews into their, Christ, you know, Judeo-Christian, they may call it Judeo-Christian instead. And, yes, um, yes, but you're, yeah. It's a good corrective to that sort of thing, your, your book, and, and thinking about those figures generally. Um, so I think that was uh, 
a, a, a diversion well well worth taking um you've you've said there are two questions um in life what is and what matters um i think that the uh you've sort of explained um your view on what is and you're a you know, committed obviously to the scientific uh, method, to the scientific worldview, a, a materialist in that sense. Um, what matters to you? Ah, uh, what matters to me, sort of personally? Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting, even that you want to make that distinction, sort of a personal matter. Um, yes. I, um, you know, I, what, what I do believe matters unconditionally, you know, that is, it's a moral statement. And, and the word matter is, um, it's, it's really interesting because I think it, it bridges the is-ought gap, right? right? When we say that something matters, we're saying we ought to pay attention to it. It's deserving of attention. There's a kind of, and, and consequences will follow if we, we pay attention to this thing. There's a kind of consequence. I'll, I'll reframe yeah. it then. What, 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 um, what is it you think that matters? What do I think that matters? Each yeah. and every single human being, <laughs> unconditionally. That is the clearest thing, you know, that, that matters. That every human, you know, wherever there is human life, there is a thing, there is something that um, is deserving of extremely close attention, the kind of attention that we feel is coming to us. Right. <laughs> you know, let's have, I mean, that is, to me, you know, just the fundamental fact of morality. Um, and so, and it's, um, you know, we can pay it lip service, but to actually live according to this thing um, and to, you know, when, when Kant's, you know, Kant with his categorical imperative, and one of the things that he said one of the ways that he formulated the categorical imperative, the thing that, that we absolutely must do is to regard um, each human, human being never as a means to an end, to our own end, but as a kingdom of ends in his or her own right. You know, and that sort of kingdom of ends, it's almost using this religious language. I love that, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, it's sort of getting that sort of sanctity into the fact of not the on high, not the transcendent, each other. Um, so, I mean, that is, that is to me, that is, a, you know, fundamental. And, you know, we're seeing it played out right now in, mm -hmm. the, in the U.S., you know, um, trying to really come to terms with what does it mean to talk about uh, certain groups as, as truly mattering. What, what, is, what is owed to that? What kind of attention do we have to pay to that? Um, so anyway, that is something. I think, mat I think knowledge matters tremendously. Um, I think knowledge and, uh, you know, and, and, and ethics, you know, the, these are the things that matter, that ought to lay out responsibilities for all of us. Um, and what matters to me um, is, uh, I don't know, to add to it in some yeah. way, yeah. add some value, uh, add some value to particular people's lives. Um, it is so, it is so hard to be human. Um, and so it really is. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, to somehow do something to add some value. How do you defend when people ask you, as I'm sure they do, because they ask me and they ask all humanists, how do you, how do you defend the proposition that every person matters um, in, in, that, in that equal way? Because, of course, um, uh, 
I mean, you've said already, well, it's the, it's the concern that we want for ourselves, that we expect to flow in our direction. Therefore, we, we ought to let it flow outwards as well. Is, is, is that sufficient? I mean, it might be sufficient. That's, that's, that, that might be your answer. Um, or is there, are there other um, reasons that you gave opinions that you have for defending that really quite, as you say, radical proposition it's radical to yeah. really carry yeah. it through and don't you think that's kind of the heart of humanism isn't that absolutely i do yeah. yes yes, yes. <laughs> um so uh well the people you know, ask would, how to defend it quite often you know you know one of the ways that one can defend things is that if there are certain things that one must believe in order to pursue one's own life coherently and then it has implications that's a kind of defense. So for example, you know, there's, oh, this is gonna get a little bit abstract. I hope this, this is okay. But you know, there is this, uh, you know, problem of induction, Hume's problem of induction. We can't actually justify that the laws of nature are going to continue into the future. We have to believe this or you can't live coherently. Mm. I mean, am I really going to say, oh gee, you know, Hume said that you know, there's no reason just because gravity's always worked before, you know, am I really, should I really not step off this cliff? You know, I mean, come yeah. on, you know, yeah. so we can't justify this, but obviously to live coherently, we've got to, we've got to be committed to it. Right. The same thing with logic itself, right. We can't, we can't, you know, we so you say that wor worthiness of moral concern is something like that, that it's something I that have we have to, to believe that my life matters, right? I have to, I mean, just even, even if I'm in despair, because I think I don't matter, right? I think my mattering matters. That's why I'm in despair, right? I mean, there is And you're no carrying way. on, you're choosing to carry on. Exactly, you're choosing to carry on. I'm pursuing, I'm pursuing my life, right? And that in itself is a commitment to my own mattering, right? And my whole emotional scheme, you know, all of it is, is, is bound up with my feeling, you know, of being committed to my life, pursuing it, and, and therefore believing that I matter. That is as ingrained in our pursuing a coherent life as induction, as deduction, as abduction of all of these things, right? And it is already, it's, it's, it's a moral commitment, you know, and I, and, and I will be outraged if you don't recognize my mattering. Yeah, um, right. Okay, so how do I defend this? What do I say I'm somehow special? Yeah, sometimes people do that. You know, I was born into the right race, the right gender, the right whatever, the, whatever. I'm, I'm so smart or I'm so beautiful or I'm so, you know, whatever. I'm tall, I'm short. People have this way of saying, yes, I'm special, you know. Um, but, you know, if you look at it pretty honestly, that's not why you believe it. You believe it because that's what it is to be human. Everybody believes it, right? Everybody has that same commitment to self. So if you're going to live coherently, you've got to, you've got to realize you have no more grounds for this than, than anybody else. So just widening it to everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's just, those are the implications. We try very, very hard, the whole history of, bias is trying very very hard to say no 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 it's uh, it's me i'm the one or, or my kind matters whatever doesn't hold up right That's, so you really think that this moral concern follows from a genuine outworking of what are the facts i do believe that i do believe that not that you know the facts that in some sense we we find in ourselves look at ourselves and what we 
have to believe about ourselves uh, in order to pursue our lives and then think, yeah, and what, and how is that justified? And you realize it's got to be at, at least um, extended to all human beings. It's not, which is to say that they all matter in the same way that you do. Um, and, uh, and which is not to say that only humans matter. This is a terrible mistake. That yes, we've been saying humans, haven't we? But I know that you and I both mean sort of suffering animals. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> exactly. yes. It's not, it's not to, to, to uh, yeah, this is a, a terrible mistake that Yuval Harari makes in his uh, book. One of uh, many. Sapiens. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Um, I think... Um, what, what should I actually this is something we've never discussed I've interested in your point of view actually is I've always thought in spite of the the word humanism and what it's, it can seem to denote to many people actually the logical consequence of of humanist beliefs is is what helps I think to expand our circle of moral concern beyond just human beings to other animals I think it's actually quite a, a unique feature of what we say about morality um, what it is and what it's for yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely true. When I don't think actually... it's a coincidence that Jeremy Bentham, Peter Singer, you know, people who have shown concern for other miles have been humanist philosophers. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I entirely, entirely agree. You know, when, you know, because of course, uh, you know, the other, what you get from the Bible, from Genesis, as a matter of fact, is, you know, um, and, and I've, uh, my, you know, when people challenge me uh, to how can you say that all humans uh, matter, you know, it's often, you know, Genesis that's, that's brought up in that, you know, we were made in the image of God, and therefore, you know, that that is what makes us uh, valuable. And that means, you know, it, that that's a puts a boundary between us and, and other sentient creatures, right, you know, right. and so that there's really no way to use the same kind of reasoning to expand it uh, beyond our species, you, you do end up with a species, speciesism. Do the, um, you're the only American that I've interviewed for this first season. I oh, was just wondering. Right? Yes, it is. It is. Oh. I was just wondering, um, as that thought occurred to me, because you're also aware of the situation in other countries, of course, you come to the UK and, and, and elsewhere, as far as I know, um, yes. uh, often. Um, there are, you know, one of the things about this series is, of podcasts is that it's um, there to lay bare and, 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 and find interesting and examine the beliefs and values and opinions of, of, of people who are humanists that people have heard of so they can see more of the diversity of different humanist beliefs and, um, as well. And it's not been difficult to find people to, to do that in the UK because, of course, the UK has a lot of humanism in the zeitgeist, you know, a lot of humanism in the common sense of, um, of the UK, a big percentage of people who have these beliefs. Um, but when I've visited the United States myself, especially to visit US humanist groups, I've often felt that that's not the case, but is it changing there? I mean, would you say that your approach to life was more in tune with your fellow Americans or less in tune? You know, it's such a vast country. Right, that's what it I was forgetting. Yes, it has so many cultures, so many subcultures. Um, and so in the academic circles that I largely inhabit, my viewpoint is, yes, there's really nothing unusual about it. It's not even worth talking about, really, right. you know? Right. Um, step outside, and um, it's, it's 
it's quite different, yes. And also geographically, where you go. Um, are you in the Northeast? Are you in Boston or are you in, you know, Selma, Alabama? Um, it's, it, it, so there's, there's great diversity um, across the U.S. And when I go to conferences, you know, at, at first I thought it was kind of absurd. Like, why do we need all of these free-thinking um, organizations that we have quite a few in the U.S. And um, I, I just thought, you know, what do you need this for? And then I started going to the conferences and people come from these places where they are completely isolated, you know, and, um, and even in the university, you know, they, they're kind of isolated. There's, there's a, a different uh, culture um, and it's, um, or it's small colleges. And then you realize, yeah, no, I live in a little bubble. And uh, there is, uh, there, yeah, there are people who, where, where it's dangerous, really, uh, to say that you're, you're not a believer. So, yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist. I haven't done any, you know, like really in-depth study um, about this. I mean, we are, it, it is a growing movement, I think. I think there are statistics that this is, you know, even in the U.S., the nuns, you know, are growing. Yeah, so cool. I nuns, don't like that. I don't like that yes, uh, word. <laughs> I, I know. And it covers, it's such a vague term. It covers right. such a, you know, plurality of beliefs, many of which I think are, you know, totally woohoo. And yeah, so, um, yeah, but. Even maybe yeah. contradictory, irreconcilable beliefs yes. like we were talking about at the beginning, people who've yes. got those. I mean, yeah, being not religious is not the same as having a, uh, a humanist view. That's obviously it's absolutely right. Case. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you as an outsider might be more in a better position to judge the U.S. Uh, well, when I visited I U.S. humanist conferences, I have often felt, especially depending on where they're held, like the ones held in sort of the middle of the United States have almost a... Um, city under siege mentality about them yeah, uh, quite yeah. often but I guess that's from their experience I suppose it's most comparable to um, people you might meet in the UK who've come from very religious communities like some of the uh, people who've this makes the US sound bad but and um, people who've maybe escaped from you know severe ultra-orthodox Jewish backgrounds or um, you know very very Islamic or exclusive brethren type Jehovah's Witness type yes because although what I've said about the UK is um, uh, generally true, of course, there are pockets and some growing pockets um, of society um, as it diversifies, of course, um, where um, someone who found they had the sort of beliefs that you started to develop at an early age or that, you know, my family have had for four generations, it's uncomfortable for them in their mm -hmm. immediate society, in their immediate culture. And so I think that, well, hopefully that's one of the things that um, podcasts like this will help to do to help people hear those beliefs that they might be coming to have or realizing they have rehearsed out loud and hopefully it will be of use to them. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that's my experience of the U.S. as well. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the U.S. is an outlier in many, many ways among yes. wealthy countries. And one of them is uh, the fervor of religious belief uh in various parts of the country various a uh, large large part yeah. of the country why beliefs matter behavior intellectual activity as a moral endeavor the importance of family spinoza the mattering of every person rebecca goldstein thank you for telling us what you believe it was a great pleasure to talk to you as always that was rebecca goldstein telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the what i believe podcast 
What I Believe is the new weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the eighth and penultimate episode of our first season. We'll be releasing one more episode next Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, listen to old episodes, or find out more about Humanist Approach to Life or Humanist UK and our work, you can do that at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk, where you can also sign up as a supporter or a member. Next week, I'll be talking to comedian, author, screenwriter, and TV presenter David Bedeal about what he believes. Mm-hmm.